0: There's more records we need to talk about. Go on um, in the progressive rock scene because, as as we kind of pointed out, this was a, a pretty good year for for progressive rock. Yeah, yeah. Jethro Tull's "Songs from the Wood" is is pretty much considered one of their their landmark albums, isn't it? It's considered the first in a trilogy, the so-called folk rock trilogy, which I've never quite understood because folk music was always a part of. Of the, the sound of Jethro Tull. But I mm. think there's something about the lyrics that kind of mu- become more bucolic with song- this trilogy of albums Songs from the Wood, Heavy Horses, and Stormwatch. Though Stormwatch is
1: quite it's very urban, dark. I think. It's very dark.
0: But people always talk about those three yeah. as the, I've never quite, particularly with Stormwatch, mm. I've never quite understood where it's seen as part of this trilogy. But anyway, Songs from the Wood has got this very earthy, bucolic quality to it lots of acoustic guitars jack in the green there's something very very english about it very much about the english countryside and i think that that there's what it's this is one of those albums where that
1: really beautifully gels with the whole musical approach yeah i mean i think you know the cover the music the cover, and yeah this is one of those that again a bit like Going for the one and Airy Fairy Nonsense, it's as detached from nineteen seventy seven as you can yes. get. But it's very confident in itself. I also saw this as kind of as their Gentle Giant album because there's a lot of very complex. I think he was um, quite influenced by vocal, the, yeah, especially the vocal rhythms yeah. and harmonies. Yeah. There's a lot of keyboards on this album as well. I mean, that's what I think differentiates this from the other folk, the other albums of the folk rock trilogy. That Heavy Horses is quite guitar oriented. Stormwatch has got a different sound again, whereas this is very heavy on the keyboards. I think the synths. Yeah, it's a good. It's, it's a good album. It's got a nice feel. And there's one album I connect with this this year, and it's that. Ian Anderson was, I think, in the early years of the Hart, if you think of Benefit, you think of Aqualung, his lyrics were very dark, very real, very connected with a way of life that was early 1970s Britain. You know, these were almost like poetry, vignettes, with almost that kitchen sink reality of Britain. Whereas Songs from the Wood, couldn't be further from that. And another artist who had it was, I think, Roy Harper. That Harper starts the decade being this kind of kitchen sink poet with these amazing albums, you know, Stormcock, Life Mask, you name it. And his album this year, Bull in the Ming Vase, is the most textured, bucolic, airy. I know there's Watford Gap, which kind of slightly contradicts it, but... It's got a very luxurious soundscape, as if this guy like Anderson, who was really connected to the kind of, I don't know, you know, brutish reality of early 70s Britain, is suddenly living in a very detached reality in a manor house.
0: Okay, but okay, let me counter that by saying two years before this, he'd made an album called Minstrel in the Gallery. That's not very down-to-earth either, <laughs> is it?
1: That is what was on the lips of everybody who was a little chef in 1975.
0: But you're right. I mean, the Roy Harper, I mean, obviously the sidelong piece on, on Bullion and Ming Vars, One of These Days in England is, well, the, the, the t- title itself alone tells you kind of all you need to know, really. Something about getting back to the country, getting back to the English countryside, pining for that way of life. Um, maybe after the grim, maybe because of life in England during the mid-70s was a bit grim.
1: It's horrible.
0: The power cuts and all yeah. that stuff. Cost of living. So there is a sort it's of like life
1: in England in twenty twenty three.
0: It's a bit. Well, it is a bit, isn't it? <laughs> but also the Anthony Phillips, the Geese and the Ghost, I suppose, has that too, doesn't it? Almost a pining for another, another time. A very English. Uh, in the case of the Geese and the Ghost, it's almost a pining for a medi- It's a kind of medieval vibe to it, not it? Or sort of lutes yeah, and uh, lutes and crumb. Am I am I making this up? Lutes and crumb horns on that record.
1: Maybe, there might not, be. maybe. Maybe maybe I'm might thinking of
0: Griffin. You're
1: thinking of Griffin. I'm thinking of Griffin. But yeah, there might be. There and might as well there be. Might, yeah, there might exactly. as well be, is what I'm saying. You no, know, it's a lovely album. I think that the reason why Geese and Ghost probably sounds the way it does is that I think he'd been writing this stuff since leaving Genesis. In some ways, it's a great album if you wanted to know where Genesis might have gone after Trespass in Another Life. It's a really lovely rambling, lots of 12-string, lovely harmonies, lovely melodies. And it's not pompous. What's interesting is it's pure prog rock. You know, we're talking about Fand is pomp. Mm. Kansas is pomp. The yes has got pomp. This is pure progressive rock in the sense of very complicated harmonies, lots of 12 string, as we say, lots of bucolic imagery. But what it isn't is pompous. Are you, saying are you saying it's pompless? I'm saying it's pompless rather than pompous. It's pompless as it's opposed pompous to pompless. It's prog. It's just a very sweet... I mean, it's, it's closer to, in a way, kind of the feel of Fairport Convention unhalf-bricking at times. Mm. But I think this is probably because he'd written this material probably between 71 and 76, and he'd just got his record contract and recorded it. And it's got um, a Phil Collins' guest appearance, which is very, very sweet. You know, he sings a couple of tracks, and um, it's him at his kind of more fool-me understated... Best in a way, and he sings it in a very unselfconscious, right. slightly reedy way, and. Colin's voice is very pretty and reedy on this album, and I think it's a really nice album. I, I
0: have it. I, I mean, I can't have listened to it recently, but I remember thinking it was very pretty. Yeah, I, it, it's got a sort of Mike Oldfieldy yeah, vibe yeah. to it as well. It's got that
1: t- post-tubular bells yeah. reediness as well. And I think what there's, not you much, said. there's not much. There's not
0: much sort of rock drum. If, if I'm remembering, remembering rightly, there's not a lot of the sort of rock drum sort of aspect to no. it. No, it's it's mostly rhythmless in that not rhythmless, and says there are rhythms obviously but there's no rhythm section on a lot of the tracks right
1: but there's an i think what you hit on there as well that all of these albums they're pining for an england that possibly never was and that fits in with the virginia Astley album we talked about from gardens where we feel oh, secure yeah. yeah and it's a nostalgia for something that possibly and never Sunset existed. wading
0: by john g perry as yeah, well.
1: yeah yeah it's a nostalgia for something that possibly never existed. Mm. It's like I always think of that to go back to the Avengers and the new Avengers, the proper one, that they were pining for an England and an Englishness that never actually existed. Right.
0: But in a way, that's what, that's what art is all about, isn't it? It's a fantasy in a way. It's a reflection of reality that isn't reality. Mm. Um, but it can make you... It's funny. It makes you feel... You know, there's so many people that say, if you can remember the 60s, you'll remember how grim it was. If you can remember the 70s, you remember how grim it was. If you can remember the 80s, you remember how naff it was. <laughs> and yet we yeah. have incredible nostalgia for the 60s, 70s and 80s, mainly because of the music and the movies that yeah. came from the 60s and well, the 70s. Well, I, I remember, because
1: obviously I, I went to the cinema, I was kind of, my dad got me an underage to see James Bond films. The criminal. Yeah. But what I remember is the music, first of all, it's the experience of the cinema, then it was the John Barry music that entranced me, but then the thing that made me sick was the cigarette smoke that basically people going to forget this, yeah. the cinemas were covered in clouds. Yeah. which probably made the films look more atmospheric as well in a bizarre way. But, you know, that, yes, there was a kind of a horrible, stinky, grimy reality mm. of things falling apart in the 60s yeah, and I 70s mean, in this, Britain. Se-
0: yeah, 70s sort of working men's club, beer and fags. Beer and fags in the English sense of the word, by the yeah, way. Yeah,
1: that was my house.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> really. Beer, beer and cigarette smoke. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, my and my, my seedy my, clubs. My
1: parents were chain smokers and drank right. incessantly, and it put me off it That's for probably life. Why
0: you don't? Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly why you don't. Yeah. So Tim, I can see where we're headed with 1977. It's going to be a four-parter. I've I've revised my previous estimate <laughs> of it's going to be a three part because we've we've we still got some more progressive rock bands yeah? that we want to talk what? about. Well, there's two other there's two other sort of elements of progressive rock that manifest this year that I want to talk about. I love them both. Yeah. One of them is the darker side of progressive rock. The f- the most nihilistic strand of progressive rock I can think of. Certainly post-Crimson, post-Vandegraaff, Vandegraaf, is this band from Belgium that come out called Universe Zero mm-hmm. with their first album this year. This is the darkest progressive rock we've heard outside of the sort of Vandegraaff, King Crimson axis, isn't it? Well, perhaps Henry Cow is also a reference point, the kind of rock in opposition thing. But yeah. What a sound. I mean, I mentioned medieval in relation to to Anthony Phillips. There's something almost medieval and primeval about this sound, isn't it? They're using bassoons and oboes and these very woody, earthy textures, but playing this dissonant. The sort of music that only men could possibly like. (laughs) Apologies for being chauvinist. I think you've got the show cancelled.
1: God knows how it kind of got signed in a way. You know, I'm glad that these things were released. I mean, Art Zoid, I was kind of putting yeah, Art a sort Zoid, of territory yeah. as well. And, yeah, you're right. It was a kind of a bizarre... I mean, I suppose that cuneiform records in the States are one of the natural homes for this kind of music now, aren't they? Mm. But, um, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, it, it's... I think Magma possibly had an aspect of it.
0: Yes, definitely. As
1: well. Definitely. Um, and it's music... that. How can I put this? It's a bit like goth for me, which we'll come on to in the 1987 episode we're going to do, that I kind of like it all when I hear it. Actually, with goth, an awful lot of goth and an awful lot of this I like, but I don't necessarily remember or take to heart in the way that I do other music.
0: It's oppressively, relentlessly dark, and there are no moments where you can breathe and come up for air. So that would be the difference, for example, no. between a Van de Graaff or a King Crimson.
1: Yeah, and even possibly know, it, yeah. another European band who kind of operate in a very dark, nihilistic, progressive territory, but equally cinematic, of course, is, is Goblin, Suspiria. Oh, yes, yeah. Which yeah. is a great... Album, But I suppose there are moments of playfulness and beauty in that as well as the darkness. So
0: definitely an acquired taste, but again, completely unique in what they did. The other sort of aspect of progressive progressive rock I want to talk about, which is an aspect I'm a big fan of. And I I say that advisedly because a lot of progressive rock fans sneer at it. Is what I see as something very much in the ascendancy in this year, which is progressive pop. Or progressive rock bands adopting lighter, more pop aspects to their sound? And we'll come on to talk about this when we talk about artists like Alan Parsons Project mm. but and Supertramp. But there's a band in, in the category we want to talk about now. And the reason they're in this category is because they were traditionally and historically very much a traditional progressive rock band. But Camel this year made their album Rain Dancers, Mm -hmm. which had elements of funk, pop, a nod to disco music in in places Mm -hmm. too. I love it. And I actually think it's one of my favorite favourite camel records. It is lighter. It is, it does have much more of a strong pop sensibility. There is one eye perhaps on perhaps having a crossover, you know, Mm -hmm. hit single. But I think Camel always had that slightly lighter side to them, anyway, didn't they? It's not Mm. like Peter Hamill suddenly decided. Yeah, yeah. Although Peter did later he did he did later on do Skin, which we're not. Particularly a fan of that record. There but, are good
1: tracks on it. There are good tracks on it. Sorry, The Ham. But anyway, well, Cowell are one of those bands I kind of, I, I'm a bit ambivalent about. I mean, I, they were one of, you know, I saw them live when I was a teenager, partly because they were one of those bands that played the venues and were affordable in the genre. And and they were always likeable and entertaining and so on. But likeable, that's a good word. Yeah. But they've never, for me, been up there with the King Crimson's, the Vandegrass, the Yeses, and so on—they've never quite had the weight of it. But this album, you know, if I were to choose albums that I think are strong by them, I think this would certainly be one of them. Breathless—I always really yeah, quite liked as well. That's the next one after this. Um, Love it. Yeah. And I even like the Rupert Hine. You know, I can see your house from here. Oh, it's a great track Amazing. And, and Moon Madness, of course, has a lovely feel. Snow Goose. It's a great record. Actually, yeah. like, it's quite funny. My dad used to do this where he'd say, "He's going." Oh, I bloody hate the Beatles. Then again, Long and Winding Road, beautiful song. Yesterday, beautiful, and then you go through the whole Beatles catalogue, and I'm saying, yeah, Camel, a bit of second rate for me. But then again, yeah, yeah. It's a bit like that. Yeah. Um,
0: before you know it, you've listened the, I've, I've the
1: entire the single factor. What a brilliant album! I like that record too. So yeah, I think it's one of the stronger albums. I my favourite on it is the one with uh, the Brian Eno guest appearance. Um, Tell me. Which almost has that kind of. I, don't, I, th- I think you've made a
0: schoolboy error there, Tim. I think the one with Eno on is called Elke. Elke.
1: Is it? Unless he's on two.
0: Unless he's on two track. All right, Elka. Tell, and me, tell me. Tell Me it's beautiful. No, though. but Tell Me. I yeah. think
1: maybe this one getting confused. Yeah.
0: Let's tell look me. it up on the source of all things
1: Wikipedia internet. or the, oh, the internet. Yeah. Tell Me has a, a few moments that are very like the second side of Before and After Science by Brian Eno. I can
0: tell you now, pop listeners, Eno is not on Tell Me. So Tim has made a,
1: His t- a terrible... His influence he's made a is terrible error. But yeah, those two tracks, Elke and um, Tell Me, that have that kind of before and after science ambience, they're probably amongst my favourite tracks on the album. But But yeah, I think I quite like the playfulness of them using funk and disco elements and of course they got Richard Sinclair on vocal voice yeah he probably had the strongest voice of anybody who sang for Camel yeah really so he gives this and Breathless a character that perhaps the other Camel albums lack really but it's funny because you know one of my very good friends Michael
0: from Michael Ackerfeld from Opeth he's a massive massive Camel fan I mean a lot of his guitar style is based on Andy, is influenced by Andy Latimer's approach. And by the way, all the, even if you concede that Camel were never a first division progressive rock band, which I would actually take issue with, I think they were, yeah. but you'd have to concede that Andy Latimer is one of the greatest it's great, Yeah, and Ice, I'm gonna,
1: again, I'm going to contradict myself. Ice, what a great track. Oh and my great goodness celebrate. me, what a great And story. the tour I saw them on first was Nude. And actually I thought Another great was, album. I thought it was a really strong album, yeah. really strong performance camel first-rate progressive <laughs> you've completely madness. undermined your own your own <laughs> statement that's in i don't like them but i really like them but anyway
0: my point was this that michael was a camel big influence on him and i'll say to him oh um you know uh, what albums are you talking about said, yeah moon madness and snow so well what do you think of the albums rain dance and breathless never bother to listen to those <laughs> and i and i think there's this and I, to me that blows my mind because a because they're not that different yeah. there's definitely a sense of continuity but but b there's something about um camel that has always sounded you know be- partly perhaps because of Andy Latimer's guitar s- sound you know and his guitar approach has always sounded quintessentially them you know whether they're making more pop orientated music or more progressive orientated mm. I find myself
1: you know preferring the more poppy records yeah, they made yeah i know i can see that rain dancers would definitely be in yeah, the yeah breathless
0: uh, News, single um, factor
1: this is the thing for me with Camel: why I guess I put them in that second-rate category. That there's something very mild overall. That, that it's never intensely beautiful or absurd. Oh,
0: I think it is intensely beautiful.
1: Nor is it.
0: Oh no. Viciously atonal. It's not viciously atonal. I mean, that's that. Like I said to you, there was something always that was on the lighter side of progressive yeah. rock for Camel. In fact, they always had more. They remind
1: a, me of Tortoise. They had. A, they had. A, why Tortoise? Because Tortoise did the same thing for me that I kind of thought it's post rock. Do something, okay? You know, it's Grab really crazy. I liked it. Grab me. So I, I liked Tortoise. Yeah. There's not a Tortoise album I don't like. Right. But I can't love it because it doesn't pull me into. And that's the same with Camel. There probably isn't a Camel album I don't like. But I don't love it because it doesn't rip me apart either in terms of its vicious atonality. Or its absolute beauty, and when we were talking about, you know, Fairwater Kings, by God, that gets nasty at times.
0: Well, I feel differently. I mean, I, I you know, I do get pretty blown away by the the beauty and the lyrical quality of Camel, but they, they are, you know, they are much more on the the pop side. Their use of harmony and chords was always quote unquote nicer. Yeah, they they aren't they weren't going to launch into any sort of ham style dissonant glump thing. But that, that was their sound. You but know. isn't it
1: strange that Camel never had the hits, whereas obviously Supertramp yeah. not only had the hits, they had some of the biggest albums of all time. You know, yeah. Breakfast in America, I think, is the fourth biggest album in France of all time mm. and was the biggest for a long time. And it was huge in America and Britain, of course. Mm. You know, it has a kind of popular appeal that rumours had. Yeah yeah
0: it's 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 just one of those things who knows not the right song maybe not not the wrong songs at the wrong time or the right song at the wrong time maybe they didn't have a apart from Richard Sinclair briefly as he was in the band maybe they didn't have a convincing singer when they needed to have a convincing singer or a convincing frontman. I don't know I mean you could say all of those things about other artists too Mm. who for whatever reason did break through but uh, I mean, the records did well, did well yeah. enough that the band were able to still be, you know, headlining venues like Hammersmith Apollo and all, or Hammersmith Odeon as it was then at the time, um, and definitely sustained through, certainly into the mid '80s, as a very successful, perhaps as you say, second-tier progressive rock act um, that never quite transcended or, or sort of jumped up to the sort of stadium arena level yeah. of some of the. I other mean, it's
1: bands. interesting isn't it, because you know you're entirely right that you when you're saying that other bands actually, some of them didn't have, you know, BGH to a certain extent, didn't have a vibrant front man or particularly strong identity. Yet they did pull out of the bag a few European hits that were very big and sustained them for longer, possibly even than Camel. So, Mm. yeah, it is interesting. And you're right, you know, when I saw them, when I saw 16, 17, um, they were selling out the Manchester Apollo. There was a dedicated audience. They definitely had
0: a following. I think BGH went a little bit further in the in the pop direction than Camel did. I mean, yeah. one of their big breakthrough songs in Germany, I think, was that song Hymn. Yeah. Which, with all its Christian overtones and sing-along quality, very anthemic quality. Mm-hmm. That concludes our look at what was happening in the world of, of progressive rock in 1977, which is no small amount of things. You know, as you say, all sorts of directions, different directions people are going off at, But there's a lot of integrity there. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of people that are still very much creatively the top of their game, aren't they? So in a way, this dovetails beautifully into our next category, uh, which I think we'll wind up this particular episode with, which is kind of progressive art slash art pop. So it's a a little bit more pop. It's too pop to be in the progressive Mm -hmm. section, I guess, is what I'm saying. And there are some interesting entries. We've put them in this category. And I think people might raise an eyebrow at why ABBA Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: carpenters would be (laughs) in this category this particular year. But so let's start with those. I mean, you kind of mentioned in in the previous episode. This is assuming we haven't cut this bit out, folks, which does happen. You mentioned in the previous episode about how there was... A strong element of of progressive rock in ABBA the album, mm-hmm. and I think you hear that most clearly on the opening track "Eagle," don't you? Yeah, it yeah. starts off very Floydy, mm. very Floydy, doesn't it? Very atmospheric and strident with the the lead guitar and the the reverberating.
1: Flute And, and they get it right. I mean, it actually, it sounds as good as any progressive rock it's band. You great. know, when I was saying yeah. that Camel was second rate, ABBA were a first rate progressive rock band when they wanted when to they be. When they wanted to
0: be. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you can look back, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you can look back and say, oh yeah, that kind of was always there. Yeah. Um, if you go back to things like the title track of Arrival, which Mike Oldfield covered, you know, mm-hmm. later on in the 70s or the There was a great
1: sophistication though in their writing and harmonies yeah. and melodies and Arrival Once more, it wasn't only the music. They'd also got their visual identity together, from the logo to the photography. Mm. Every detail of it was as mapped out as a Pink Floyd album.
0: Unless we forget this album also has a three-piece suite on it, The Girl with the Golden Hair. Indeed. What could be more progressive rock than that? <laughs> Although, of course, they would probably say, well, that comes from the tradition of musicals, in you know, a music hall, yeah, they, yeah. which I think is more what they were aiming for. They were trying to, they were beginning to dabble with the idea of we're going to write a musical,
1: uh, which, of course, they would later go on to do with Chess and and then, obviously, the Mamma Mia but They were highly franchise. musical, and I think that there probably was a kind of a tangential, genuine interest in progressive music because they were... Perfectionists, decent musicians, and they were probably aware of cutting edge productions all around. So, you know, I'm sure that ABBA were very aware of Pink Floyd.
0: Oh, completely. I think they were always very curious. I mean, you know, their their love of disco music. Giorgio
1: Moroder as well. Giorgio
0: Moroder, you know, you can hear that clearly in Dancing Queen. But everything they took, this is the brilliance, and this may be the Swedish thing, this is the brilliance of those guys. Everything they took was completely recast in their own image and it didn't sound derivative at all and it's the same with a song like eagle you would never immediately think oh progressive rock pink floyd it just sounds like abba yeah. but and that's the beauty of this record and you know the big singles off this record name of the game it's quite dark this famous swedish melancholia the fact that the songs are very often about unrequited love breakups divorces this is the album I remember coming into my family's house. So it's actually the first ABBA record I would have listened to. And some people would argue it's, not, it's a bit of a step down from Arrival. But mm. actually, I love it just as much. And partly because it is even more diverse than Arrival.
1: I think it's, it's possibly right. I mean, Arrival was the album I remember being in our house and I loved mm. it this i think i liked slightly less at the time but only slightly less and i think in retrospect i probably like it slightly more i don't think there's much between them mm.
0: actually no this is peak. Um, this
1: is these two albums are
0: for me this is aber- they're abs- this is the imperial album though
1: period. i would i agree with you though i would you're going to say the visitors, visitors aren't. You? Yeah, it's brilliant. and i and i think the visitors does what you're saying that again with the visitors they're listening to some quite cutting edge electronic pop music but they're making it ABBA. And it's a very stripped-down production, but it sounds like nothing other than ABBA, even though the soundscape is so different from Eagle, so different from Arrival.
0: I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that this is their imperial phase in the sense that it, just seem, it doesn't seem to matter what they do, it will be massive. Yeah. And they're pulling it off. Yeah, and yeah. they're pulling it off in a way that is quintessentially only them. And yeah, they are being magpies in the sense they're borrowing from disco, they're borrowing from pop, they're borrowing from schlager. I mean, Thank You for the Music is on this record, which mm. is like a classic Scandinavian schlager song. And yet it just sounds like ABBA, you know, and it's yeah. now one of the most popular songs of all.
1: Well, well, that's I think we said before, that in, there are certain artists where they are magpies, but everything they take becomes them. Prince is a great example. Yeah. Um, and Bowie is a great example of that. And I think, you know, I've always said that I think to me, a lot of great music comes from two sources, and it's one, it's the Mark Hollis... Got to get him in this. Even oh, my mom's. God.
0: I hope you had your it's, drinks on standby there, guys.
1: <laughs> it's the Mark Hollis Van Morrison, purely feeding off their own yeah. emotion and world. Or it's the Bowie Prince taking from everything externally. And Abba come from that, really, don't they? In a way, yes, but... The, in every every
0: way you kind of examine ABBA, they are, uh, examine ABBA they're kind of an, an anomaly that kind of defy analysis, aren't they? Because on paper they do everything wrong, and yet somehow everything seems to work. And this is what I mean by this being their imperial phase. Mm. It's just like everything they did went to number one. And, you know, they were terribly, terribly unfashionable. I mean, I remember speaking to Andy Partridge about this, and he's saying, well, at the time, ABBA was like, you know, Just everything we hated about mainstream music, and we did. Now I can listen to ABBA and I can hear the genius, and I think you'll hear that from a lot of people. That kind of, I mean, I was young enough to be able to, naive enough to be able to appreciate it without any strings attached. But I guess if you were into punk and you were a teenager at the time, ABBA would have been the devil incarnate. Probably that and the Bee Gees doing
1: Saturday Night Fever would have been the devil incarnate, wouldn't it? To a degree was but you know again luckily I kind of liked all sides of it mm. so you know again we'll probably come to Sad Night Fever but um I liked the ABBA stuff I liked the BG stuff it's probably the last time I liked it I think you know as a as in a fan buying the records mm. you know because I weirdly I think I discovered the visitors retrospectively me also whereas yeah. this stuff I was buying at the time yeah. Arrival the album yeah. I bought and I think that was it. That yeah. I, I really liked them, but that was where I left off because my tastes and perhaps the tastes of my friends.
0: But also, I think the albums that every household had were Arrival and the album. Whereas the later albums that obviously didn't sell quite mm. to that magnitude, um, my, my parents had Arrival and they had the album yeah. and they had Abba's Greatest Hits as well. So oh knew, yes, of course. I knew yeah. the early songs here yeah, with that amazing cover of of the two couples on the park bench. Let's talk about the other the other sort of anomaly here: Carpenter's Passages. Now. I don't know if you know this record, Tim. It's not a great Carpenters record because this is where Carpenters seem to be flailing around for what to do next. And this record has some some absurd moments on it. Trying them trying to be funky, sexy pop Mm -hmm. doesn't work, guys. It doesn't work when Richard and Karen Carpenter try to do sassy, sexy, funky pop. Just doesn't work. They try to do a bit of opera on an Avita medley. Mm -hmm. Doesn't work karen carpenter doing don't cry for me argentina you'd think would be amazing but it's Mm. actually quite a flat rendering of it she doesn't seem like she's engaged in it but it's mad and it has my favorite carpenter song on it which in itself is a cover version of a song by another group that we 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 might be able to talk about clartu because they released an album this year clartu calling occupants of interplanetary craft one of the great cover versions for me. An, an example of a cover version, and again, this is just my opinion, a cover version that completely blows the original out of the water. It's epic. It goes through all these different sections, but there's something about it. At the heart of it, there's still this great song, great arrangement, and this sublime vocal mm-hmm. interpretation. I love the musical palette. I love the arrangement. It's ludicrous in the best possible way. So for me, this album gets a free pass because of this, <laughs> of this song. And there's a few other good tracks on it,
1: but it's basically
0: an album of one track for me. And again, it's, it's completely progressive art pop.
1: I mean, I only know this track. It's funny because I know... It's all you need to know. Yeah, I know a few Carpenter's albums, and I have a few Carpenter's albums. And her voice is is utterly gorgeous. And you can hear it today. What's interesting is when you listen to people like Lana Del Rey and a few contemporary singers, you can see that Karen Carpenter still has an impact in contemporary culture. She's got this kind of beautiful, deathless, narcotic mm. voice, which I was very drawn to. And tracks like Superstar, I can play endlessly mm. You know, and this was a great song and I remember it on the radio and I liked it. And and yes, Carpenters were one of those artists that were in every family's home. Usually the greatest hits collection, it must be said. So, yeah, I liked it. I, I like the Klaatu original as well. But it's
0: good. It's good. It's just not as good for me.
1: Yeah, well, partly I don't think it's quite. I, I think with Klaatu, there was that slightly psychedelic pastiche element, whereas this takes it into a totally different dimension her voice and so on it's it feels much more luxurious whereas one is a kind of a a daffy pastiche to a degree and a very good daffy pastiche the carpenters track is quintessentially carpenters but quintessentially insane as well you know um, I it, agree. It's, it, I mean, it's the lushness. You're just wading through lushness. It's like a luxury carpet that yeah. you're actually <laughs> into, with your knees up to your knees. Completely. In
0: it. But you're loving every second of the experience.
1: It's only bettered, really, by I think Arriving UFO by Yes on Tomaso a year afterwards.
0: I quite like Arriving UFO. It's, uh, it, but it's not. It's not quite. Uh, well, kids.
1: it's very simmer, isn't it? I wonder if Arriving UFO was partly Possibly. influenced by Possibly. this. Well, I think that
0: kind of sci-fi was very much in vogue, wasn't it, with Star Wars? Close Encounters. Close Encounters, yeah, those kind of things. Right, Tim, let's move on to the real meat here now. <laughs> There's some albums that here that I think you and I could probably evangelise about till Kingdom Come. Let's let's deal with the 10CC family albums. Go
1: on.
0: 10CC's Deceptive Benz and Lol Cream and Kevin Godley's Grand 3LP conceptual folly. You love it or you hate it, you adore it, you don't or you don't get it at all.
1: Consequences. Should we start with that one? Consequences. We can do. Well, consequences for me is the ultimate album years album, in a way. It's the sort of album that we'd have talked about when we had the idea for the podcast. Although what I am gonna say here to almost contradict the the evangelization of it. Is that the albums that I really love from 1977 that I still play and still love as much, we still haven't even got on to. Okay. We're near the end of a second episode. No, we no, we will come on to them.
0: We will Okay, so I'm gonna be the one to evangelize about because this is, this is a top three yeah. from the from the year album for
1: me, consequences. Okay. I couldn't afford it at the time because I was a huge 10cc fan, and it was really expensive. And I remember that they were on something like Magpie with the the gizmo, the gizmotron. And um, I couldn't afford it. The first godling Cream album I could afford was Elle, a year later, which I think is a masterpiece. I adore It's not as good as L. So consequences, I didn't really get to hear until the early 80s when I had the money to buy it. It's fascinating. You know, It's it's one of the most bizarre popular music albums, if you can call it that of all time and for that reason it belongs in this podcast it's it's
0: also one of the most intricately designed records you will ever hear Mm -hmm. i mean the first record so just so folks just to explain to folks who don't know this record it's a three lp concept about how the elements are going to destroy the planet earth and how a pianist composes a symphony it sounds ridiculous as (laughs) i'm saying how a pianist composes a piece of music which basically counteracts the elements and calms the earth again and saves humanity the whole of the first record is about it's almost entirely instrumental it's basically how the elements are gradually building up and encroaching on the planet earth and impacting on the planet earth So you have pieces which are just based around how the wind is working its destructive power, how water is working its destructive power. And one of the most incredible pieces of... And this is 1977, remember, this is before sampling. There's a piece called Flood where the rhythm of the piece is created by tape loops of water dripping. Now, you just have to go and hear this to hear it for yourself, to hear how incredible it is. They spent weeks just constructing these rhythms using tape loops of individual drops of water. And a lot of the rest of the record is based on this instrument that they invented, which you you mentioned, Mm. the gizmo, which was a guitar, an attachment to the guitar that enabled the guitar to sound like other instruments like cellos violins even saxophones and there's virtually no keyboards i think the only keyboard instrument is the piano isn't it on the record yeah everything else all of these incredible textures strings woodwinds brass instruments is created with the gizmo and the record was originally conceived to be a demonstration record for gizmo that record itself the degree of sound design i mean how they created the sound of a of a of a bee by recording a whole piece of music and then speeding it up a hundred times so apparently if you slow that bee down you get an unreleased piece of godly and cream music oh really i mean just that stuff (laughs) blows my mind that attention to detail and sound design It just blows my mind. It's a beautiful record. The melody's stunning. And then the second and third record are um, like this extended comedy, dramatic skit with Peter Mm. Cook voicing almost all the voices, the famous British comedian voicing. And I think this is where the more controversial element of the record comes in, isn't it? A lot of people just can't. Yeah. But then interspersed between classic, I mean, you're going to agree with me. yeah what is that song for three o'clock at five o'clock in the morning morning, lost weekend lost weekend with with Sarah Vaughan Vaughan. oh my god yeah
1: um
0: and then the final side is the blintz overture the overture that the pianist has created to kind of counteract the i mean i'm described even as i'm describing it, it sounds like and it is the greatest progressive (laughs) rock folly of the 70s but i love this record it is like
1: nothing else you will ever hear on on earth. I no I really like it. It's not okay. my favorite Godly and cream album. my favorites are L and Freeze Frame. I just think they're, they're
0: great magnificent. But records. they're to me they're more like standard albums. They don't to have the extent, folly of
1: they've still got folly and well, ambition have, yeah. though and 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 incredible attention to detail. Yeah, I mean I I think it's a it's a great album and it's a wonderful Ludicrous folly, as you've said, and I so I appreciate it for that reason. Um, I probably like the songs and the instrumental aspect more than the audio play that's running through it with Peter Cook. And you're right, the flood is absolutely stunning. Five o'clock in the morning, last weekend. Yeah, it's there's some gorgeous music, and the gizmo. Does recreate orchestral sounds, but in the way of a mellotron, it doesn't get them right. So it has such a distinctive sound. This album, which is one of the things I, you know, when you're listening to some of the riffs, what it's not got, and and I like it for this, is when you said it's a kind of a progressive rock album, it's not got any of the ridiculously tricky technical rhythms. No, there's no,
0: there's no showboating, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. got
1: more of no. a sense of groove or momentum. And if it has any relationship to any progressive artist, if you can call him that, there's a certain aspect to the album where you think they've probably heard Tubia Bell's Hergus ridge Omidorn and love these records. There's an aspect of Mike Oldfield's sensibility to me on this. I don't know mm. why... Mm-hmm. Um, I can hear that more than any other artist in a way. And of course, it was recorded in the manor, wasn't it, as well, where um, Oldfield recorded his... Okay. um, Some of it was. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, And the story I like about this is that they just were carried away. You know, they left Tennessee C at the peak of their popularity to pursue this dream, got completely lost in it with nobody necessarily directing them. And then they woke up almost when the album was being launched and it was being launched in front of record executives who were expecting a hit album from the two quirky songwriters of 10cc and they got this instrumental tour de force an ambitious concept and an audio drama come comedy and people were falling asleep at the table while they were listening to it and Again, to bring up John Peel, John Peel was a huge 10CC fan, but he thought this was one of the most awful works in the history of recorded music.
0: It's definitely a polarising record. I've never quite understood it to why people take such exception to it. People, Some people
1: really, really hate it. I think it's awful. Um, I think, ba- think Godling Cream did themselves also, for a while, yeah. partly because of the negative reaction. Mm. Um, because if L is them reining themselves in, it's still insane and insanely creative. Um, and they remained that way. Yeah, it, it's it's a real labour of love. And as you say, the sonic attention to detail is amazing. And there are pieces that I would treasure. I sort of prefer music from Consequences because the album didn't do that well. And the company released a compilation called Music from Consequences of the More Accessible Moments. And in a way, I kind of prefer that.
0: So let's talk about just to recap: Godly and Cream left 10cc in order to make this album Consequences. 10cc, meanwhile, the other two members of 10cc, Eric Stewart and, and Graham Goldman, now left on their own without godly and cream went on to make a record called deceptive bends now we were talking about this earlier off air tim this is an interesting development because after this we pretty much don't like anything else they ever (laughs) did and in fact the record after this is such a massive fall off isn't it in terms of creativity that it's this album deceptive bends which we both love is almost like how how did this work? And my theory was is perhaps that a lot of the music was still developed was developed while Godly and Cream were still around. Yeah. To give them perhaps a little bit more rigor in terms of the songwriting and the creativity. Because it's right up there with the very best of the as, as a piece work, of production,
1: yeah. I mean what's interesting about this is that it's a brilliant piece of production. When you're listening to the single Good Morning Judge as an example, it sounds great. There are so many clever ideas for what is essentially still a very catchy pop song. So I do think that once more, this is a band operating at the top of their game. My theory is slightly different in that my theory is that they were trying to show Godly and Cream that they could be the Mm -hmm. band they were, Mm -hmm. and they could do it all. And they did it all. And I don't quite know why after this. It's not only the creative drop off, the productions, which aren't poor. They're not poor productions, but they're not remotely ambitious in the same way. They're not remotely innovative in the same way that the band had been. And there are a few songs after this album that I think are good. But generally speaking, this is it for me with 10CC. They do this album, which is a great conclusion to their first five albums. And then that's it. But to me, I I kind of, I suppose I sort of feel it's them saying, we can do this. We can be everything, just ourselves. And they were almost accessing the godly and cream in their brain.
0: It's a great album, isn't it? For me, it's the last great 10cc album. And it's right up there with the ones that precede it. Um, I think Consequences obviously is the more ambitious it's got the it's got the real kind of how can we make a record like no one else has made a record and i think mm. that kind of sensibility was missing from 10cc once they left in the same way that the great songwriting sensibility was perhaps missing from godly and cream when they were no longer working with graham gorman and eric stewart yeah. which is a great exa- you know that kind of g- gestalt thing where you have these people that just beautifully dovetail together in the in the different sensibilities they have creates something that transcends the sum of its parts so two two amazing records if for, for the 10CC fan this year basically is yeah. what we're saying isn't and
1: it? I think what you're saying becomes more true with sort of you know 78 79 80 where I love L you know and L I think is, is a fantastic creative record same with freeze frame but interestingly enough, I do think both sides miss each other at the side. As much as I love Godly and Cream, sometimes they're missing that firm hand and melodic sensibility because Graham Goldman is a great songwriter, Eric Stewart's a great songwriter and a great singer. And you kind of feel that they might have been a bit like the Beatles, as you know, obviously one of the great stories in popular music that had Godly and Cream been tempered by Goldman and Stewart. Ellen Freeze frame might be that bit better. They might be more relatable, more heart. And certainly had Godly and Cream been in Tennessee on Bloody Tourists and Look Here, they would have been greater creative statements that you kind of suddenly feel that they're missing each other. Although I'm still very happy to follow that Godly and Cream journey because it was so inspired and so... Um, You know, even to the point of the hits, you know, under your thumb and so on in the early 80s when they redefine themselves again. So, Tim, two last albums we have to talk about. Firstly,
0: now, Common Wisdom says that most double albums should have been cut down and would have been better as single LPs. Right. That's the Mm -hmm. that's the cliche, isn't it? It's not true of this double Mm -hmm. album. Out of the Blue by the Electric Light Orchestra, you know, in many ways, they the greatest album of all. Every track on this, I think, just is a little slice of genius. I mean, what I love about, you know, Out of the Blue and Electric Light Orchestra is, is I guess, what Jeff Lynne's big influence were also very good at. The Beatles are always very good at every song created its own little universe, you know, yeah. its own little world. And there's a lot of that going on with ELO, even though there is that kind of ELO sound going through everything with the strings and everything. Mm-hmm. Just the quality of the songwriting here, and also the fact that every song seems to have its own little personality, its own little identity, tells, seems to tell its own story musically and lyrically. And of course, side three here, you've got the prog friendly concerto for a rainy day, which finishes with Mr. Blue Sky, their most, yeah. most well known song. But also, you know, lots of what the Americans would call deep cuts on this record. I'm a big fan of, like the instrumental, the whale mm-hmm. a song, like it's over. A song like stepping out, the big ballad, the power ballad that ends the first first disc, Wild West Hero, all these sort of little thematic songs. Just, a, just a, a great songwriter and a great producer, really peaking at the top of his game. Everything sort of leading up. To me, anyway, it seems like everything is leading up to this record
1: for them. What, what's your feeling about this? Record? Yeah, I think there's a tremendous confidence. It's a, it's a great record. I mean, my favourite Yellow Records are probably the first album, which I think is great, the one with Roy Wood. I think it's I amazing. It. And I really like El Dorado, I think. that's I like, love On the Third Day, Face the Music. Yeah. I mean,
0: they're, they're all great records, but there's something, you know, again, we were talking earlier about a band when they kind of hit their imperial I phase. I agree, yeah.
1: This is it, isn't it? Uh, and, and I think Discovery, to a certain extent, has an aspect of it you know this was always seen as quite a weak album when it came out Discovery but um I think it's pretty sporting, I, I like disco-
0: I like Discovery although um again I think you know the title uh, as the title would suggest they were kind of exploring disco a little bit but this album it's like every track just completely hits the target and I think you know I, I think I read somewhere that Jeff Lynne pretty much wrote all the songs for it in like in two weeks <laughs> right. I mean that's that's when you know someone is really on fire and the fact that they wrote he wrote enough songs to create a double album as well
1: but as you say it's kind of one of those albums that uh, on one level it's kind of definitively creamily late 70s with the harmonies of the production but you've also got in his music a tremendous sense of being loyal to his influences so the beatles Figure strongly, possibly even the Beach Boys in a certain tangential way, and I've always kind of found the there's a sort of Roy Orbison and even Del Shannon influence you can hear. He loves that in stuff. what yeah. he was doing. Yeah, but in some ways it was. You know, I think that the Beatles album that had the most influence in the seventies is in some ways Abbey Road, and especially that sweet on Abbey Road, and you can hear that through the music of Ten CC, obviously Wings, but also. ELO and this was in some ways the last unselfconscious great album that came out of that Beatles explosion of the 60s
0: it's it's just a divine piece of pop you know very very sophisticated not cool is Jeff Lynne's never going to be cool is he but you know a bit like the Bee Gees you just have to stand back and wonder at the at the 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 sort of talent yeah. for moulding time after time after time. I mean, this is the this is the thing about bands like Bee Gees and ELO. They didn't just do it once on one album. They did it time after time. And Jeff Lynn's a bit like that too, just being able to somehow knock out these incredibly classy pop songs that sound like no one else but themselves. I mean, I understand the Beatles' lineage, but ELO completely by this point had their own sound. And you can hear them leading up to it through those preceding albums, and particularly the previous album, New World Record, is kind of like a dry run in a way yeah. for. Although again, it has some of the you know most famous lauded songs on it, but it feels it feels like a dry run for this their magnum opus, and having the confidence to do a you know a sidelong suite. I'm guessing the record label took a bit of persuading. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they didn't, but it's a, you know it's always it's always a sort of slightly controversial move when a when a, a band that are kind of seen seem to be at the peak of their powers decide suddenly they're going to make their grand double LP state at least it was in the seventies wasn't yeah. it you know but I think that the think success of, of New World
1: Records like yeah. probably meant they could do whatever the hell they loved. Sure, they could, yeah. And they pulled it off. Whereas obviously Tusk, I think, is a fantastic album, it clearly hit the brand fairly badly. This actually took the brand several steps up. I mean, again, they're one of those bands I remember when I was at school that, you know, regardless of, of fashion taste or fashion status... Lots of people like them and lots of people bought the seven inches in particular, more than the album in some ways. And partly it was the marketing. I don't remember. There's that huge thing. Of course, it's huge now, but it was the kind of coloured vinyl seven inch. The last album, I think we should definitely
0: just spend a little bit of time before we wrap up part two of 1977 is I mean, I don't I personally don't think it's a great album. I think it's a great artist that went on to make great albums. But why this is significant, and I think you'll probably point this out, is that this was the artist separating himself from the band he came from in quite a successful way, even if it is a stepping stone or a kind of watershed record, which is the first Peter Gabriel album. Mm -hmm. I I think it's the weakest of, of certainly the first few Peter Gabriel albums. I'm a big fan of Four. Four is where it really peaks for me. Mm. I quite like bits of of it, but I think it's quite a confused album. I don't think Bob Ezrin was perhaps a particularly ideal choice of producer. Too bombastic for for Peter Gabriel, I would think. The version of Here Comes the Flood on the record is is not as good as the version uh, on Robert Fripp's Exposure record. So it's kind of, for me, it's always been slightly disappointing as a record. But I think you have a slightly different perspective on it, Tim, right?
1: Well, I think, yeah. I think, number one, it was a definitive means of disassociating himself from Genesis. You know, this is not a progressive rock album. What it is, I think you're right, it is quite confused. It has a few sort of hard-hitting rock pieces. I think... While they've got a kind of certain new wave edge, I think the bombast comes from them being influenced by Springsteen. I think there's always more Springsteen in Gabriel than people seem to think. I think that, you know, Springsteen was as important as punk in terms of sort of redefining people's perception of mid 70s to late 70s rock music. And I think Gabriel wasn't immune to the Springsteen charms. And maybe that is why he ventured towards America, towards Ezrin. And I've always quite liked Ezrin's productions. He's got quite a distinctive too. approach. And I, mean, I really too, like yeah. his work with Alex Cooper and obviously his work with Lou Reed on Berlin. Um, so I think it kind of hangs together because of Ezrin's sense of arrangement. But it's very much a producer's album. I think what's interesting is it's almost as if Gable has given his songs and his voice to this top American producer. And perhaps this top American producer has, I think, produced quite a consistent album, but one that doesn't necessarily bring out certain strengths of, of Gabriel.
0: See, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it's quite inconsistent. I think the inconsistency for me comes from the fact it's almost like he doesn't quite know. I'm talking about Gabriel himself. Here, he doesn't quite know what kind of artist he wants to be. So you have got the rockers. You've mm. got the big stadium power ballads. You've got the, the barber shop song whatever it is i forgot what it's called now excuse me excuse me you've got the sort of pure chart pop of salisbury hill you've got all these different styles and for me they don't quite hang together and i think there was a sense that he spent the first couple of records experimenting trying to figure out what is the way forward? What what do I want to do as a solo artist? And of course, everything coheres on the on third, three. On well, the third I mean,
1: you know, yeah, I think this is obviously another drinking game favorite. But for me, three and four remain remarkable albums. And this is where not only does he find his voice, he discovers the future as well. You know, a lot of the nineteen eighties is defined by the production innovations on three and four. I think they're astonishing albums. So, yeah, I think that he's clearly trying out personas. Um, And I guess in his position, you know, there was a possibility of him going down the Bowie route or the ferry route. Um, or the Springsteen route. There were all sorts of possibilities.
0: Well, he I mean, he kind of did go down the Bowie route. And in fact, for me, there's a very clear passing of the baton from Gabriel, from Bowie at the end of the 70s or the beginning of the 80s to Gabriel, because Gabriel came of age as an artist in the 80s and produced amazing work in the 80s. So to me it's almost like Gabriel is the Bowie of the 80s in someone who's relentlessly curious, relentlessly pursuing new technology, collaborators, exploring the possibilities of what pop music can can be and Bowie in the meantime is making Never let me down <laughs> and tonight <laughs> and tonight yeah but
1: bowie i mean scary monsters i think is a brilliant way to Well watch that's 1980s yeah. Yeah. yeah and i think let's dance you know i've i've always really liked let's dance and again partly it's a good record yeah, that yeah, reminds me I'm simplifying yeah of the Ezra and Gabriel thing and you know Nile Rodgers with Bowie mm. is the fusion of those two talents which produces something quite unique and obviously it's a big mainstream Album, but I think Bowie makes it his own. Of course, it doesn't mean as much to me as as Low, Black Star, Heroes, uh, Scary Monsters. But I think it's it's a really strong album and a strong statement. Um, yeah, this the, the debut Gay I mean You know, Humdrum. I think is, is a gorgeous piece of work. But I think before that he was trying out various bands as well. You know, he I don't think he necessarily knew what he wanted to do. And there are about you know there are all sorts of bootlegs out there if you look of him in seventy four to seventy seven. So when was the last Genesis
0: album he's on? Was that 1974? 74. Five, 74. So actually, he spent three years in R and D before he actually yeah. Releases. I've got a, I've got a
1: lot of the, yeah. the bootlegs from this period, and some of them are beautiful. But yeah, I, I you know I don't think he found his voice properly until three. But I think this has got some glorious pieces, and I and I sort of I do quite like the whole bombast of the Ezra in production. So. Tim, we should
0: wrap things up there because we spent a whole episode just talking really about progressive and progressive art pop. There's, in fact, there's even some records we haven't touched on: Steve Hillage, Motivation Radio, Renaissance Novella, John Greaves, Peter Q Rone. Yeah,
1: that's a great album, Curone. It's a good it.
0: record, yeah. Philip Glass, North Star, Supertramp, Even in the Quietest Moments, Alan Parsons Project, I, Robot. So many. I mean, so many records we could talk about, but I think we should probably wrap this up now. Um, we've still got. Oh my God we've still got probably another two episodes worth of stuff (laughs) to talk about 1977. What a year.
1: Um, Yeah. It should be a series, a whole series. Uh, Just on on 1977.
0: Yeah. But let's wrap this one up and we will be back on uh, 1977 part three to talk. Well, I think we're going to start talking about some disco, some disco music, which of course is the other big genre that, that sort of broke through in 1977. So, We'll be back to talk to you uh, in, in part three about disco and some other musical styles as well. But for now, thank you very much for listening to part two of 1977. Goodbye from me and goodbye from Tim. Bye bye. <laughs>